We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. All right, first and foremost, man, I want to shout out Josh. I, I, I didn't know any of this stuff was happening or coming or whatever, but, yo, that's fire, bro. The talent, man, the talent. So so uh, let's do a quick check-in, but let's make this check-in a little bit different than uh, than what we normally do. We normally just like, yo, how you doing, whatever. I want to know uh, what kind of self-care have you been doing uh, with either you or your family for the past week? Because, you know, I'm trying to make sure that y'all are here uh, forever. So, uh, Breezy, starting with you, man. What are you doing to take care of yourself? Um, so I worry. Um, I take on more than I can do in a day. And then I worry about it at night. And then I don't sleep as well. And I wake up the next. Is that what you mean? Is that you talking about? Like not, no, no, you know we don't use that term. No, 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 no. Let me let me tell you what I do for self care. I, I first of all nothing. Usually, usually this is a new concept to me. But this week, I'm glad that you brought this up, Ray, because I'm making myself. It's not like I'm making myself. Let me stop acting like I have agency. I hit a wall, <laughs> so I just turned on the Xbox and started playing playing Minecraft for hours. Okay. And it wasn't because I wanted to. It was a cry for help. <laughs> it was just my mind saying, we're going to do something else. We're going to go to a different world. So that's it. I play Minecraft. I have eaten better this week, too. That's the other thing. Uh, got a little less of the meat, a little more of the plant-based stuff. So that's what I did. Minecraft and plant-based stuff. That's what I did. That's what's up. Charles, before we go to you, if you're in the audience, what are you doing for self-care? What are you doing to uh, to make sure that, you know, the things that, that you're trying to stay here forever? Let us know in the comments. Uh, Charles, what are you doing, man? Brother, you know, I don't I don't use that term, brother. I don't I don't I don't believe in it. It is not it's not a part of my ministry, bro. I do my job and that's that's it. B. I, I, and I enjoy my work, man. So I'm, I'm good with it. Um, but I'm, I'm good, man. Just like I said, I just, just been working and trying to actually make things better for the people I care about, man. That's, that's what I focus on. I get energized right. by my work. That's what's up. I, I don't think that I was trying to imply that nobody gets energized by their work. I was just trying to see the things that you're doing in order to keep yourself mentally balanced. So for me, uh, I'm picking back up with my yoga, right? And so, uh, uh, Apple fitness plus is an amazing mm -hmm. resource. Mm -hmm. Great app. I use uh, that too. For, for any exercising mm -hmm. that you want to do, uh, regardless of you're at the gym, regardless of you're at home. Uh, I just got in a pre-show uh, pre bike ride, 30 minutes worth of hip-hop. It's amazing. I'm closing these rings. And so, um, yeah, that, that's what I think I'm he froze. About. Did he freeze for you, Chris? No, no. No, he's not frozen. Oh, okay. No, I'm good. It might no, just no, be me. I'm, 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 I'm a re I'll refresh. Okay. I'm glad um, both of y'all said this because I got the the fitness app and yeah. I paid for the one and yeah. it was all I'm gonna do all this great stuff when it when it comes online. I was the early adopter. Me too. Haven't opened it once yet. Haven't opened it once yet. So now I'm well, glad to hear your endorsement. Yo, it's, that good. It's amazing. I, I I actually canceled Peloton um because this one's better. Like I was all, right. all out Peloton, but like this one's better. 
So that's that's amazing. All right, so fellas, man, we got an exciting guest tonight. You know, we've been doing a lot of talking about just setting parents up for success and, and, and getting parents resources or whatever. So let me introduce uh, Dr. Annette C. Anderson. She's a native of Baltimore and graduate of Baltimore City Public Schools. So she's heavy in the in, in Baltimore City. Uh, besides her research pursuits, she served uh, as a, in a variety of school-based positions, including a classroom teacher, teacher leader, curriculum coordinator, assistant principal, and the founding principal of uh, the founding uh, chief executive officer and principal of Widener Partnership Academy, um, uh, a super dope charter school. Uh, located in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, she returned to Baltimore City uh, to help John Hopkins construct an early childhood K-8 community programming and uh, its $55 million facility at uh, Henderson Hopkins School in Baltimore, in, in East Baltimore. Um, she is uh, the Deputy Director of John Hopkins Center for Safe and Healthy Schools Dr. Anderson is also a co-founder of the eSchools Initiative, an interdisciplinary uh, effort focused on equity and education uh, with Hopkins colleagues in medicine, public health, ethics, and, uh, and, and they have a teacher vaccination dashboard. They're doing everything at Hopkins. She's been on CNN, CNBC, uh, Good Morning America, Fox News. She's, she's been everywhere. Uh, wow. Bachelor's degree from Syracuse University, master's public policy from Georgetown, uh, second master's and PhD from University of Pennsylvania. So she got some Ivy in her, uh, but she's not an Ivy. She's my Sora. Uh, <laughs> so uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Anderson. It is amazing to have you here. How are you feeling and what are you doing for self-care? Well, I, first of all, let me just say I am so excited to be here with the black hand. You don't know, honey. This has been something I've been excited about all week. So I just want to say what a great honor it is to be with people who are really lifting up the work, who are in it, who take no prisoners. <laughs> so I love that. But um, that are true, true to what the work has to be. So first of all, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, the other thing I wanted to say for my self-care is that I have become a pandemic gardener. Mm. And I have to say that today my entire family went to visit Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania and talk about getting your steps in, talk about seeing beautiful flowers, talk about just having fresh air and rejuvenation. It just makes a big difference in this pandemic to get out of the house and to see things and to do things that are closer to nature. So I'm trying to be closer to that. That's what's up. Thank you for that. So, you know, fellas, you know, we get these uh, these inboxes all the time from schools of education saying that they use our podcast as professional development and things of that <laughs> nature. And so, you know, we got John Hopkins in the building. That's what number uh, one, two, three, one of them every year. Up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that school of education is big time. So, again, thank you so much for coming and kicking it with us. So. Um, you came on my show one time and you talked to uh, you talked to me about the gates. So can you just talk to us quickly about what these gates are so we can kind of dive in? 
Yeah. So, you know, when I was here before, I was talking about how we need parents to understand some of these critical milestones that their children need to successfully walk through so that they can get to the places that we want our children to go. So it's important to understand that there are three gates. Really, there's four, but really the critical ones um, to master early on that parents should be paying attention to, in my mind, are these three gates of kindergarten and executive function, third grade and literacy, eighth grade and algebra. And then as you reminded me so uh, poignantly, thinking about the high school graduation gate. So parents are thinking about their children. They want their children to have the best education possible, but it's also really critical that parents understand that if their children miss these gates, it's going to be so much more difficult for them to catch up. And I think a lot of parents, particularly parents um, in underrepresented communities, feel that they have turned their children over to the schools because the schools know best. But, you know, I really want to make it my message to admonish parents. Even when I was a principal, I always said to parents that it is your job to shepherd your children across the finish line. And so I really encourage parents to be more active and engaged. I think the, the pandemic has certainly let people understand that parents are driving the bus right now around school choice and parent choice, and they should have more options so that they can get what they want for their children. All right, cool. Thank you for that. We're going to jump into each individual gate and talk through it uh, a little bit thoroughly, uh, more thoroughly than what you just talked about. But Chris, I want you to talk about, man, your your, uh, your plate as a parent, man. It started 30 years ago and you've been a parent for every decade. <laughs> what, what are some of the things that you look for uh, when you go into schools? Um, well, I mean, I think what's important about what Dr. Anderson just said is just that, um, you know, you talk about me as a parent. I've been have been I've had an evolution as a parent. So mm-hmm. my, my first son was in the 90s. So um, so I was learning kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, all of those for the first time as a father and several kids in now. I've had to repeat some of those grades. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like you ever become. As a parent, if you're a lay person and you're not an educator on the outside, it's not like you have a perfect understanding just because you went through it a few times. The the expecta- expectations change. It doesn't feel like anybody tells you on day one, this is what we need to, here's where we need to land by the end of the year. Um, these are the colors and the shapes and everything you're going to need to know, for instance, for this particular grade or whatever. So you feel like in some ways you're catching up all the time. And if you don't have great communication, Like if the school isn't really great, what I've learned over time now is there are many different ways in which the school gets in touch with you to let you know critical information at critical times. And the more creative they get, the more ways it comes to you, the more opportunity is going to stick. Right. I don't think a lot of people understand, especially when you have multiple kids like I do. You're not just sitting at home all day long waiting for something to do with school. Right. Like You got lots of stuff going on. So, you know, um, the way that they communicate with us, to me, actually is one of the things I look for. How's the principal communicating? If they have uh, uh, additional staff, like like some schools have assistants, people who do very like this is the person for testing and this is the person for your art stuff or whatever. Um, that's what I want to see. I want to see all of those people being on the same page with letting us know what we need to know, because you can't you can't complain about whether or not we're involved. If you are not actually helping us be the best we can possibly be. Now, if you do all of that and then we're still not showing up to be the best that we can be. Now we have a different conversation. Mm. 
Yeah, that's dope. Hey, Charles, I, w- I want you to jump in, man. But I want you to to I want you to to, to view this from the eyes of your social work eyes first, or like what mm-hmm. you would look for as a social worker going into schools, and then also just like from 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 the way you advocate for kids um, uh, through your company. What what are you looking for when you when you talk to them and, and, and their experiences in school? Yeah, man. Thanks. I think it's a good question. Um, so there's this thing that's called a help chart uh, that helps. It starts actually at zero. Right. Uh, just around uh, youth development. Like, you know, is the baby sitting up doing this? And and then they, they also extend and there's stuff that goes until 18. So I even dropped a link in the notes just for myself, just to, you know, just in case I needed it. But there are certain milestones in different age groups that I just kind of been trained in, right? Around like ages when you should kind of expect for kids to challenge authority or want more adult roles or things of that. So I go in kind of versed in that. And then on the academic side, I kind of couple that with what are the standards of like, what's the bare minimum that young people should be able to do? And I try to combine those when I, when I do my work. So um, I've been, I think I've been successful in energy converters because of, because of the way in which I try to uh, infuse those and also noticing young people that are forced to have to perform at higher levels off that help chart. Uh, So for instance, when I was a social worker, that's when I realized when I did that exercise, I think I've talked about on the show before of the percentage of my life of what I would of going to college if these things happen. Right. And so I deal with a lot of young people who have a lot more responsibility at younger ages. And so how does that kind of impact other places? The way in which we do it with our young people is I try to see where they are and do a basic assessment. Uh, there go those words again, right? Assessment and people are like testing and it's racist and all this stuff. Right. But we try to do a basic assessment and then we try to set appropriate goals. Right. And then we have push goals. So it's like, yo, if we get here, we're really good, but I'm going to push you two levels beyond that because you might end up being ahead. And I think that that's how you end up getting young people that like are just, you know, super, just super talented. And you didn't even know because, you know, that's how that's that fishbowl theory. Right. If you put a fishbowl, if you put a fish in a small fishbowl, it can't outgrow the bowl. You got to put them in a bigger bowl constantly. So I try to put young people in bigger bowls constantly. Uh, and if they don't reach to that thing, that's fine. Um, but at the very least, they'll be where they're supposed to be. That's dope. So, Doc, I'm going to bring you back in because, you know, I know your expertise is uh, is what I'm about to ask you. So uh, speaking about the kindergarten gate, right, how do you feel like COVID-19 has kind of been a setback? Yeah. yeah. Well, because the kindergarten is really so remember that the origins of kindergarten was that you had kids playing in a garden. Right. So it was the the place of where children were learning social skills. They were, you know, learning how to be constructivist. They were thinking about how they could engage in play through play. And so we have a challenge now because COVID has taken that away from most kids, particularly kids in in large urban school systems. And so as we're thinking about how kids are going to progress in the next year, we have to think about the potential that those kids have not had a great deal of socialization. So there is a there is some angst, there is some concern that as kids uh, accelerate into the next grade because of the pandemic, that they uh, have missed some of those key milestones that teachers use to look at kindergarten readiness and to think about their capacity to be able to move very easily into the next grades, but also pre-K. So pre-K is also a place where children learn a lot of socialization skills. You learn things in kindergarten like walking in line, sitting in your seat, following directions, being kind, listening 
to the directions of the teacher, um, being nice to your neighbor, um, treating others as you want to be treated. So all of those things have now, for most kids, they have not had to experience that in a class of 20 to 30 students. Um, they haven't had to learn patience. They haven't had to learn how to participate um, in group activities and how each person takes a turn. Those are activities that are kind of essential to being able to do kind of group activities um, and to meet norms as kids go into first, second, and third grade. And so it's really important that kids have those experiences. I don't think that it's uh, going to to be the end all be all for kids, but it definitely really is important. In kindergarten, when you see kids that have not been able to successfully master all of those skills, it, sit, it typically sends up a flag for those kindergarten teachers, also for administrators, that they need to provide some additional supports and scaffolds around that student so that they can make sure that that student is able to progress to first grade successfully. So it is important that as students start to go back to schools in the fall or now, that there is more experience and exposure and that there is some way to assess how students are, are handling this social emotional piece as they prepare for the rigor of first grade learning. So, Doc, we're going to stay on you for a second, right? Because I, a lot of parents, like, you know, and uh, I think Chris spoke before about just being a lay parent. So, you know, I, I kind of want to run the gamut in terms of, like, having this conversation. If there's lay parents that are in our audience listening right now, what should kids know at home prior to coming to kindergarten? So prior to coming to school, like, I got my I have, I have my thoughts. But you're the expert on the panel today. And so what what, what should kids know? Uh, from home prior to to kind of set them up for success to be successful in kindergarten? Well, it's mostly the social skills that we, you know, that we want our children to know when they're teenagers. It's the same kind of skills. You want them to learn how to be kind. You want them to be good people. You want them to participate. You want to teach them how to speak up for themselves, how to advocate for themselves. But you also want to teach them how to learn, how to be able to organize their work. They start learning how to organize instruction in kindergarten, being able to take care of your desk, clean your desk off. So just being able to think about how those students are taking care of those skills at home. Do they take care of their rooms? Do they keep their uh, keep their clothes tidy? I've got one right now who's a teenager that I'm like, Lord, I failed this child. So I know that there are <laughs> there are that even at home, there are gates for just socialization, but you want it. Are they making friends easily? Are they able to detach detachment from the parent? That's also a critical milestone in preschool. That they have to be able to leave the nest and go into the kindergarten classroom and feel safe <laughs> and know that they will be able to, at the end of the day, reunite with their family and not be upset. So those are some of the key things. And, and you know, all kids are on a continuum. I often say to parents, because some parents will say, you know, for example, if their child had tubes in their ears, I've had parents through the years who were very concerned about whether this meant that their child was going to have a learning disability or speech impediment. But children are all on a continuum. The beauty of life is that we are all different and we will all meet the, these milestones at different times. But there is a general guideline for when we expect some students to get to certain points in order to start thinking about additional supports if they're not able to get there successfully on their own. Yeah. So so uh, Chris, as being uh, the other parent tonight uh, mm -hmm, on, mm -hmm. uh, on the show, um, a teacher calls you. And they're like, hey, you know, we understand COVID happened or whatever. Uh, you 
this this example, your, ch- your child's in kindergarten. Your child is going to, we're, we're recommending that your child repeat kindergarten. What's mm-hmm. your response? So are we role playing right now? Yeah, we're role playing. Okay. <laughs> um, don't you ever call me again with this mess. If you do, I'm going to come up there and I'm going to cut you. I will cut you. <laughs> How's that? Is that is that a good hey. role play? Is that, is that a good role the reason, play? The reason why I'm asking, man, is because um I'm I'm seeing in a lot of in a, uh, on, on social media and I'm seeing it pretty frequently that uh folks yeah. are recommending kids uh to be retained. Uh you know, in kindergarten? Of, yeah, there's lots of people red shirting their kids on purpose, like even themselves, you know, they're doing it themselves. This is what I will say. And I, Dr. Anderson, I would love to know if you agree with this. We have to stop acting like we're going to be in normal times anytime soon. Absolutely. So we have to start Absolutely. acting like we have Absolutely. to plan for some weird Absolutely. contingencies. Like we Absolutely. need to plan in a way we've never planned before to meet the times because we're not like nothing is. This isn't an interruption anymore. This is, is stop being an interruption. We're going to have a mass remediation project on our hands. We're going to have, when I heard the, heard you say the word earlier milestones, we don't even know what it looks like to make up milestones. Um, we don't know what it looks like to have almost a lost generation before. So we need a different plan than we've ever had before. And at the same time, we have a massive amount of money that is about to come from the federal government to schools mm-hmm. and to school districts. Mm-hmm. People need to be accounting for how they're going to plan to do something different to meet for the times. We still have teachers that don't want to work right now. We still have districts that are using five years ago methods of remote learning. They still, you know, they're just now catching up in some cases, even on how to do that. They can't do that next year with things like remediation. They need to be experts. They need to be advanced. They need good plans. Uh, When kids do come back, because we don't even know right now um, when or how, but I bet you they're going to come back staggered. You know, you're going to have some kids back and some not in yes. the fall. Right. Yes. You know, and, and the, the class of those kids, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to have more middle class and upper middle class families who abandon the schools or, or do something different. And schools are going to have larger populations of uh, uh, working class kids and underclass mm-hmm. kids. So something different has to happen. I don't know what the, I don't know what superintendents, mayors, governors, uh, what they got up their sleeves. But they're going to have to plan something really different than what they got going on now. Mm. I agree. And and I think that it's also really important that parents be at the table to say what they want, because part of the challenge is that schools have been driving this bus for so long. You know, they tell us what day to show up. They tell us what supplies to bring. And we mm. haul off to the big box store and we just make sure we get all the tissues and paper towels and wipes that we can. And we mm. feel as parents that, that we now have done our job as parents. But the challenge is that going back in the fall will not look like anything we've ever had before right. in the history of public education. And so parents now have an opportunity. And I hope that parents, particularly on tonight's show, will Think about what they want for their children. No child should fail kindergarten. That doesn't even make logical sense that you're not passing kindergarten a year into a pandemic where everything has changed. But what I do say is that it's important for parents to understand what those milestones are. So if your child's not meeting them, you can get supports for your child. But I definitely, I don't think I would agree with retaining. Retaining children has not shown any significant uh effect positively 
for kids, particularly kids of color. We know that the research says that if you retain a child once, they have a 50% chance of dropping out. You retain them twice, they have a 100% chance of dropping out. So we need to think about what other options are available, but parents need to be informed about their options. Many parents in this pandem pandemic have gone to homeschooling, to micro schools, learning pods, unschools. There's all kinds of new things that are happening and districts are trying. I have to give districts a lot of credit because they are trying to be responsive to that. They're trying to think about how they can stand up virtual academies. They're trying to think about how they can stand up more formal versions of learning pods. So I have to say that districts are realizing for some kids going back to what was is not going to work. And I think that parents have an opportunity to make that work to their advantage, mm. to think about for their own children, how their children learn best and how to support them. But make no mistake, this pandemic has called every parent into action to think about how you want your child to be educated. So stand up for what you want for your children. Yeah, I, I just want to add one part, one thing real quick, Ray. I think it's 16 states. I want to say, I think I just read it, 16 states that have uh, retention laws, meaning you have to retain um, if you don't pass certain grades. And in those states, they have not they haven't augmented it any way yet. So someone fact check me, but I think it's about, you know, 14, 15, 16 states. So what uh, I would say to that, though, is that many states have also tried to create loops that loop and worker loops, loopholes and workarounds so that they can get kids to that gate. Because what happens is you have too many kids that get retained. If you're if you really are just going to retain mm -hmm. kids on a cut score. Right. We're going to just cut the score and say now we're going to retain all the kids below that score. States have realized that that doesn't work either. So there are lots of ways around that. And that's why you see with states that have, you know, high school graduation requirements, they also have lots of pathways. You hear about these pathways to graduation because credit recovery programs and all kinds of other things have to be in play because otherwise you would have so many students who just would never get across the finish line. And so again, parents should be aware going into this that they cannot just give their children over to a system they have to walk hand in hand with their child until they cross the finish line. So, Amen. so, so Charles, I want to, I want to mm. throw something at you, right? So, so uh, for the folks that are in the audience right now and you're into this whole science of reading thing, I don't want you coming in these comments and coming at me or whatever, because I, I'm not, I'm not, I, that's not my energy tonight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cause you don't believe in science, right? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not it, but that's that's, just, that's not the show tonight. But, uh, <laughs> so um, a lot of uh, uh, historically disenfranchised kids, they come into kindergarten reading at an AA uh, reading level uh, for those folks that are familiar with reading level. And so by the time that they're finished with kindergarten, the approximate reading level that they should be at, according to uh, all the data that points them in the right trajectory to be on grade level, is they should be reading at about a level E. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm thinking about these alphabets, I start thinking about A to G, mm -hmm. right? And I start thinking about the levels of success that you need to be at in order to uh, be qualified for college in California. So Charles, just want you to talk a little bit about A to G and how how the kindergarten trajectory kind of 
can be the the tail as to like if a, if a kid is going to be successful uh, or ready to go to college. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question. And we got a lot of people listening right now. It, before we jump into this, Ray put together a really good show. If y'all could take a moment right now and like, love, share this uh, podcast, we would really, really appreciate it. We depend on you. And I want to watch these numbers go up live. Um, but I would just say first, so for, for, for people that's outside of California and may not have a high school kid, a, a through G are the requirements uh, to, to qualify for California universities at CSUs and UCs and a lot of the private universities and outside universities will also uh, honor that measurement, right? And we have an issue where black and brown kids are graduating at higher clips, but they are not A through G eligible. Um, that was the case for my best friend, my brother who ended up going to the army uh, and that's work that I do around. To answer your question, Ray, um, kids somewhat being left behind or not being at the level that they need to be at in kindergarten, I would say there's a lot of time in between kindergarten and when you get to, to high school, but it is indicative of a system, as Dr. Anderson said, that you should not ever just feel comfortable just handing your child off to anyway. Um, and, and here's how I'm looking at the pandemic. I try to find silver linings in things. I think all the advice that she gave you is true without a pandemic. And a lot of people will be um, and a lot of people will be like now paying a lot more attention because of the pandemic. So I think that you are going to see things earlier on. I think that you're going to see, yo, if my child can get left behind in kindergarten, how vigilant do I need to be moving on uh, into the future? So I think it's indicative of what can happen to your child in the future. But. You know, at kindergarten, if, if you fall behind in kindergarten and first grade, you got a little bit of time and you can kind of catch up just because the state mandates like the state levels, what they say should be, quote unquote, normal or at level. That's not like a that, that's think of that as bare minimum. Think of that as like the lowest tier. Right. You can go beyond that stuff. And I think that our school system has never done a good job of scaffolding. And as Chris had just pointed out you're going to need to be able to scaffold even more than ever. And I don't know if your school has the power and the ability and the knowledge and the will to do that. So I think you should be really in tune with your kids' curriculum. I think it is okay to ask your, your, your teachers, what is the goal for this quarter? What should my child know with this quarter and what's coming next? Because what happens is public systems have to try to do the most for everybody. That means that you're going to get some real average outcomes if that's the thing that's true. So you should be pretty aware and maybe you can do some pushing forward on your own. That's giving additional reading at home. That's showing like certain videos that can help push them along. And then I think after a while, once we demystify what these settings are and what and what this kind of looks like, you, you might have a, a, a homeschool apparatus that's working side by side with your school at that traditional school that they already go to. So um, mm -hmm. I think that's what being vigilant can do. And you it might be a blessing that you didn't know you needed. Yeah, that's dope. All right. So so hey, we're going to jump to third grade. I feel like we covered K. Right. So, uh, Dr. A, talk to us about the, the third grade gate. Well, I, I'm really just thinking about what Dr. Cole just said. I mean, it's a really powerful message and thinking about what he said about his friend. When you walk alongside people in real time and you know that you're on one track and they're on another, it becomes very disconcerting to look around. I think one of the things for me is, you know, my I and I, you know, I rep Baltimore City very strong. But to think about my elementary school experience, I was actually skipped. I was skipped in school because they said I was accelerated. But I often think about all of the kids that were in my class and how they didn't have the same kind of 
options access because of, but I think it was also my mother's involvement, my father's involvement. My parents were there all the time. My father would come home, he would land at BWI, drive from the airport and come to my classroom to see what I was doing. And so having that kind of parent involvement, we need to continue to have that kind of engagement. When you start to talk about third grade literacy, that is a critical milestone. (laughs) And I often wonder why we don't have, because we know by the end of first grade, what the literacy scores look like for all of our pumpkins. So I often wonder why we haven't hired twice as many first grade teachers. We have this kind of stepstone system in our schools where we have, if we have four first grade classes, we have four second grade classes, we have four third grade classes all the way up. Why don't we have extra classes so that we can reduce class sizes? I was listening to what Chris said about all of the funding that is pouring into schools and districts right now. And if I had one wish, it would be that we use a lot of it to make sure that every kid is meeting that third grade reading gate because that literacy gate is critical to being able to move forward. So thinking about how we could go back in first grade, if we could hire extra teachers to make the class sizes even smaller, if you needed to be in a class size of four to make sure that you're meeting your literacy gate, then we should be thinking about how to do that. So again, the pandemic has been disruptive in a lot of ways, but it also has opened a lot of opportunity. And I think going back, just because we have four first grade classrooms doesn't mean that we need to only have four first grade classrooms in a building. We should think about what do we need for our children and not think about these finite spaces. The pandemic has taught us that education does not have to be in a building. And so we should be thinking out of the box so that we can get our children what they deserve in literacy. Amen. So, so, uh, so that, that class size research that you just talked so eloquently about is a bunch of hookie. Yeah. First of all, there's nothing black that's a bunch of hooky ever. Um, let's just start there. <laughs> and uh, the class size research, what are you going to say, Ray? What are you going to say I've, about it? I've seen kids that are 30 plus in a classroom be 100% proficient or, or state testing. I've seen it. But you haven't seen them be as good as they can be if it wasn't 30 kids in a classroom. Exactly. First of all. No, and, no, and, no, I have, I have, yeah. I have. And most most of the research around, you know, it's just not cost effective. But like if you get down to 15 kids Mm -hmm. is when some stuff, good stuff starts happening. And if you get down to 10. But I love this point about thinking outside of the building. If you have all this money raining down on schools and school districts and systems and reading is your goal, like third grade reading is your, your function. We can start deputizing people. To teach reading. Hello. Right. Uh, uh, Fidel Castro did that in Cuba and and Gaddafi did it in in, uh, uh, Libya. And, you know, like they they deputize regular people to become um, practitioners, reading practitioners. And let's think big for once. What would be so wrong with paying moms to take reading themselves (laughs) and to finish classes in reading themselves, adult basic education in reading? What would be so wrong with using some of this money for other than the nonprofit industrial complex and the middle class people who work in schools? You know, nothing beats poverty like money. So if we want to teach reading, we can start a cultural revolution. The amount of money that's about to come, that's the only thing that has me thinking like that. Just be very honest with you. You're never going to see this amount of money again in a one-time rain 
like shower come down on public schools. You know, Chris, there's this great fund called the People's Literacy Fund that has done some of that stuff. Uh, we have done just that. We have invested directly into the community around right. that stuff. And you know what else works in, in addition to parents or deputizing those people? It's other students. So another thing that I would always do is I would take older students in to teach younger students because when you teach, you actually learn far more and then young people learn more by people that mm. they respect. So that means that if I go to a you know who does this the best is academic. I mean, is uh, is athletics do it. So let's say I went to raise college. I'm a freshman. He's a senior. What what a lot of universities would do if he's running track and I'm playing ball, they would deputize Ray to be my athletic trainer. He would be training me and conditioning me. And that's something that a lot of universities utilize because a friend of mine did that with Russell Westbrook. Right. It's just and so like young people appreciate and respect people that slightly older them because they look up to them and. If I got to teach you reading, I, I have to know it better to end up teaching you. Um, that's that's why we utilize mentoring in the way that we do. So I think there's a lot of ways to be creative that we have been doing. That's also germane to African people. And that's the other thing, man. Like, that's why we got to learn more about our history and where we come from, because this is the way that they teach in villages as well. And that's the way a lot of those one school classroom, those one classroom schools used to get a lot of learning done and produce doctors and scientists and all that stuff with no money. So anyway, I didn't mean to jump in right there, but no, no, no. Oh, okay, good. I want to sit here yeah. for a second because uh, a lot of that money is going to be used to create positions to then have uh, the funds allocated to who, Chris? I want you to talk about this. What are these? What? Because what, you, you just talked about sustaining the middle class, yeah, right. And yeah. I know there's going to be a lot of these positions that are going to be f- fulfilling that sustaining of the middle class while. Uh, some fees are going to be withdrawn from those paychecks to go towards who? Well, I mean, I know, you know, I know you're trying to say the unions, uh, uh, like, like you in the most unsubtle way, you're trying to say the unions. But this is what I will say. The, the largest investment that the United States or any state or any district makes in the learning of children is in salaries. That is the largest investment that we make. If we want kids to learn in the United States and we want to make a really big bet, the bet that we make is if we put that money into salaries, it's going to create a force of people who will have the impact you want them to have. Traditionally, that is a there's a broken logic there because it should work that way. But there's a lot of things that happen with those salaries. And oftentimes those salaries. So all I'm asking right now is we'd be smart. If we're going to pay for people to do things, because that's all a salary is, you're paying people to do things. We should be smart about the things that we choose. Well, we should be smart about a couple of things. The who, who should we pay? Right? Who is important? The who, who should we pay? What will be their, their mission? What will be their task and how will we they know, how will we know that they're achieving it and accomplishing it? And will we be able to show at some point that there was a ROI, like by investing this big block of money? Because what we have done for years is we have paid in steps and lanes and steps and lanes don't really tell you about outcomes. They really don't. There's no connection between steps and lanes and outcomes of children in classrooms. There's just not. I'm sorry, folks. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some educators who are going to get mad at me, but it, there's also not any connection between those of you who get the additional money in your step in your lane because you went and got a master's degree, right? Or, or a second master's or whatever. Um, so maybe this time around, so, so since we've done that for a hundred years, maybe this time around, if we have a discrete goal like third grade reading, every kid reading in third grade, right? Mm-hmm. Which is damn possible because 
you know, <laughs> we're, we're a nation that, my kindergarten. Okay. Bro, we well, I don't know about that, but I would just say this much: we're a nation that spends, you know, one point seven trillion dollars on a, a fighter bomb bomber that nobody wants, right? That doesn't work, but we can't get kids reading in the United States. Those two things don't even, bro. We got pictures coming back from Mars. We're remote controlling a device that is six thousand, six hundred thousand miles away, or whatever, and 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 we can't get kids reading by third grade, whatnot. We can invest in the right people to do the right thing. And I don't think that that has to be in the building or in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I do think that kids can learn a lot at home, but not if everybody is economically stressed and stressed out. So maybe put some of that money into the caretakers of our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or into Charles's program, because I'm not going to steal Charles's thunder because he can call me up again. But not at all. You <laughs> do it. I just, I just, listen, I just thought it was a great idea. I just think yeah. great minds think alike, brother. Go ahead. I, you know, but, uh, <laughs> So I need more money to get more people. Here's what I'll say. Can I just say one last thing, which is that we need to also think about how we are giving parents an early warning if their children are not meeting that third grade benchmark. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that is missing. It just worries me that so many parents, even if your child is making good grades on their report card, it does not necessarily mean that they are reading on grade level by the end of third grade. And so, again, this is how you get parents that are so disappointed in high school because they think that their pumpkins are on their way to these very competitive elite colleges. And then they find out they get the wool pulled from beneath them because they have invested in a system. They have trusted a system that is not designed to reciprocate. And so again, we need to think about how we are going to notify parents with this early warning system. They should be getting it again in kindergarten and in first grade so that they are aware so that parents can intervene. It is the most heartbreaking thing to see parents see their children in high school and for those parents to feel helpless because they have done their part and they don't understand that the system is not designed to help you to accelerate unless you know the shadow system, which is how to make those connections and connect the dots and get your kid through and across the finish line. Our, we had, our young people had a suggestion for that. Ray, I'll, I'll be less than a minute, brother. I'm sorry. The, the suggestion that they had around A through G so parents could actually read it and understand it was a red, yellow, green system. Yes. Now, so regardless what mm-hmm. your GPA is, mm-hmm. there's a big ass light at the top right corner and parents have to sign off if it's yellow or red. You can do something like that mm-hmm. for kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade around reading or whatnot that draws your attention. But here's the reason and here's some of the pushback you'll get. And some of this pushback does come behind closed doors from unions is that teachers and educators, all of the pushback, teachers and educators then have to explain why my child has an A in your class, but is not on grade level. And that's not a conversation that a lot of people want to have. And it shows that the system is busted and there's an issue with it. But that, that, that suggestion came from students. Mm. So So my first question is why give the A? Right. If you if you know that this kid is not functioning at, at the grade. So, Dr. A, I feel like I feel like what you just described and, and taking it back to uh, Chris's uh, military analogy is that you just described a missile defense system. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scud missiles that warn us <laughs> that warn us when, <laughs> that warn us when, uh, when North Korea and nations like that are, are, are about to attack us. Right. 
And so it, I don't know. I'm just I'm perplexed at the at, at what you guys are talking about right now, right? Because like I think about when I think about this, I think about and I think about my uh, missile defense idea. I think of standardized tests being that missile defense because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, if the if, if teachers aren't telling parents, hey, your kid is not on grade level, and parents have no other way to know, there has to be a secondary way in which parents can figure this out. And right now, even though you know, I, I'm not the, I'm I'm a, I'm a, mm. I am. I'm with you, Ray. Because <laughs> I'm going to say this unpopular opinion. Yeah. Last Saturday and yeah. this Saturday. Last Saturday, I dropped my kids off at nine in the morning to take their standardized annual test. You had to opt in this year. So you had to actually proactively say you want to do this. It wasn't a passive activity this year. And when I got there, there was a line of parents out the door with their kids. I expected it to be a handful of kids because I'm not in a big di- district. So I expected us just to waltz right in and have them sit down, be by their dammy, taking a little test or whatnot. The parents were coming out the door. Right. And I thought, wow, isn't this interesting? These parents are actually opting in to have their kids tested. And then today we dropped them off for the math portion. Last week was reading today was uh, or yesterday was it was the math portion. Then they scheduled for three hours. The kids knocked it out in an hour. We talk about we project onto them. Oh, it's going to make them so, you know, uh, (laughs) they're going to hate life and it's going to put so much stress on them and so much pressure and blah, blah, blah. Man, this was the most normal thing these kids have done that reminds them of school in the last year, because this raggedy remote learning that they've been doing actually isn't even anything close to what they're used to. And they've been claiming they've been uh, complaining about it all year. But taking the test, the annual test or whatnot, I think they felt uh, uh, and like, listen, it was no pressure. You know, it wasn't like we're saying, you know, you better go in there and ace this thing or nothing like that. No, we just want to know. And I live in a state where the results come back pretty fast. So we don't have to wait until next year. Or, you know, I hear some states, you know, they don't get the results back until I don't know when. But uh, yeah, I mean, like our, we, we fixed that a few years ago. So it, you get them back pretty quick. Ignorance uh, is so bliss. There is nothing else you do where there isn't some type of assessment. If I pay if I pay a trainer, that trainer is going to take my weight and test my mic early on, right? What can you lift? How heavy are you? How fast are you running this? How long, how, how much wind do you have? And then we set a goal and we celebrate small victories along the way. And we alter course based off those assessments. And we assess that stuff all the time. I hated taking those tests, right? But if somebody was saying, Charles, this is where you are. This is where we want to get to. And this is, I like seeing my progress. I show progress with the families I work with as a social worker. I show progress to the teachers I coach, to the principals I supported. Like people like seeing themselves progress. And if something falls off, then we can alter course. But I mean, if this swimming in ignorance is bliss, it's just, it's just wild to me, man. And and I, this isn't about stressing out kids. If kids are super stressed out from that, then that just goes into the other point. Then have people that can help them manage and deal with that stress and process that. Life is stressful, man. I'm just, I, I, I'm just saying. I ain't, go ahead, Doctor Anderson. I'm sorry. No, Doctor Cole. I agree with both you and Chris. What I will say is that I think there was overreach, right? So it went too far. When we start saying the teachers are going to get fired because of test scores or. and and because and that i think that that's but that's problematic right i do think that that's we have gone too far when we start firing teachers over test scores when we start trying to you know compare districts and we've made you know the real estate 
more important because, you know, if you have test scores in one one zip code that is at one level and test scores at another, then the pro- property values go up. That's what I find to be problematic because that's not equity. We're, we're just giving more ammunition to an inequitable system. I agree with you that assessments on their face value are important, but I also think that we should be thinking more holistically about how we're supporting. I just worry that we have not done enough to support and lift up our most vulnerable children. And so I will continue to speak up for that. I will continue to fight for that. That's what I really feel passionately about. But I don't think that assessments in and of themselves are bad tools. I think that when we weaponize the tools against teachers and districts and we start making all these comparisons, then I think that's when it becomes problematic because now we have an issue where we don't have enough of the good teachers. The great teachers are leaving the field and we need to think about how we're going to build a pipeline. I also worry because I run school leadership programs at Hopkins. And so I worry about who's coming into the leadership pipelines. And if you haven't been a great teacher, then how are you going to be a great leader? And so we've got to be thinking about all of this from a much more holistic stance than just trying to make sure that we do a gotcha towards teachers or unions. I just want to make sure kids get what they're supposed to get and that those kids that haven't gotten what they need are going to be able to have the resources to support them. So it really means, as Chris was saying, that we have to peel back the onion and get to the center, get to the core of this thing and think about how we can use these this opportunity to just bust it wide open and redo this whole framing. You, you know what? I, I, I mean, can we stay here for a second? Because I was just talking about the assessments in general. I think that, I mean, I think that that's just lazy on whoever's part, right? Like maybe like when you look at assessments, you should look at everybody's assessment. Maybe you just are an educator that works better with a certain type of young person. I do better with coaches. I do better with people that are direct, might yell a little bit, has some goals out there. I can be competitive. And just the things that were germane to me as a little black boy that probably didn't work for some of the other kids in those classrooms. I think that that's what we're talking about. But you said a few things about equity and doing what's right. And th- but when does that happen? When, is, when in, in, in recent history for black people across this country, when has that ever happened? And my question, the only reason I'm saying that is I don't think I should, you should be doing it as a gotcha or anything like that. I'm not even talking about teachers and unions at this point. I'm talking about what the expectation should be. And I don't know why we would expect schools to treat our babies better during this pandemic when they didn't treat them better when the conditions were, were normal. Like, so I don't, I, I just feel like expecting them to do right even under duress when they can't do well when things are rolling smoothly I, I just I just feel like that's a fool's errand on, on some level and I think if you're a parent it's just how do you partner with that school to get what you need to get and at what point do you make a decision that this may not just be the place for me and my kid and, and I just want to say, I don't think that's where the system is listening to some of us as parents. When I tell you that I have been a parent for three decades and I still my youngest is 10. So I'm still in this thing. I still have three multiples going through multiple mm-hmm. teachers. I've been through a lot of classrooms and teachers for, over the years as a parent. And it has there has never been anything weaponized against the teachers that have done anything well or not good for my kids. Those teachers have never been necessarily um, the the pillar exemplars of accountability for my child's achievement. Um, I've had a very different experience maybe than other people, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for the teachers, you know, getting rated on things. Not a single one of the teachers in any of the schools I've been in have ever been fired for anything. Right. We've had nothing. We've had sex abuse cases where teachers have like come out the other end. Okay. 
Right. So like like we've had some really like like crazy things. When I was a school board member, I used to be a school board member who every Tuesday they would bring me the discipline cases of teachers. And I used to have to sit in a closed room that the public wasn't privy to and listen to why some people were going to keep their jobs who shouldn't keep their jobs. Uh, and it was amazing to me as a citizen, like as a layperson, seeing that from the inside. I was like, this is how these things work. I thought y'all care about children. I thought, you know, because everything is so, oh, we love our, our babies. We love our children in public. But in private, man, them unions are nothing nice when they come in there and negotiate to help somebody keep their job. We never closed a single school for low test scores. We never uh, fired a single teacher for low test scores. And when we did fire a teacher, it was long after that teacher had done damage to a, a couple of generations of kids. Yeah. Right. And, and here was the most stunning thing for me as a lay person, a person from the outside coming in, seeing the inside is that person who would get let go if it ever happened uh, for multiple things. Every educator in the building around them knew they weren't good, just like police departments. Right. Just like police officers who know that cop that's beating somebody's butt every night, all them silent cops around them. So when it comes to me as a person, as a parent, when people say trust teachers and we know what's best and our measurements, there's a two problems I have with that. Number one, it's never worked out for me as a parent, like as a parent that's like I've, we've had to catch things late sometimes. Problems that we were having, we had to catch them late because the teacher wasn't on top of it. The other thing is, in all my years I, of looking at education, I have never seen the teachers union or teachers themselves come up with a meaningful replacement for the, the assessments they don't like. One that will still let you know at the end of the day, because you, you the experts, you the professionals, you got $500 million as a national union and you don't like testing. You can't just keep throwing rocks at Pearson. What's your replacement? And that replacement better be meaningful in that. It better not be rating a whole bunch of stuff and kids still can't read, right? Like if you still can't read and can't do math, but it's rating stuff like, did you have breakfast, right? Like, like so that's all I'm saying. Until we get that meaningful replacement for the assessments that we have right now, I need it. I just need it. You'll never, so you'll never get that meaningful replacement from the people that you just asked for from. It's like asking people from my party to give you a replacement for Obamacare. It's never going to happen. Talk about, <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, that's true. That's a good. That's a good way to look at it. So, Doc, eighth grade, algebra gate. Well, I think this is one of the more critical gates in mm-hmm. in a child's trajectory because we know that in eighth grade. Algebra is a prerequisite to being able to take the more challenging math courses, calculus, trigonometry, geometry. So it's a gateway. And unfortunately, many parents, I think, are unaware that their children have to have successfully completed this course by the end of eighth grade to be on track for college and career. And I think that a lot of students get passed along to general math and then they find themselves at a loss when they're in high school because they have missed the opportunity to take those more challenging classes. But the thing that you also have to understand is that parents need to be intervening, not in eighth grade, but way back in about fifth grade to make sure that their kid's schedule in fifth grade is lining up to 
to culminate in that eighth grade algebra course. So if you haven't seen the weights, if you haven't seen the schedule, if you haven't seen the scheduling for what math looks like in your child's school and upper elementary school and going into eighth grade, if you haven't asked that question, I would implore every parent right now to send an email off to your school's principal and say, what is happening between fifth grade math and eighth grade math so that my child can make sure that they are in eighth grade algebra, because if they don't get there, because your college colleges are looking in their trans in your child's transcript for these prerequisite courses. And so many parents are unaware that their children need to be on that track. And they just and by fifth grade math, they're just like, well, they're doing good, whatever that is, whatever that means. And so they just let it go. Parents cannot just let it go. Fight for your kids. Fight for your kids. When you read about all these kids that get into these gifted programs, many of those kids are there because the parents fought for their kids to be there, not because they tested in. So as a parent, you have a voice. Look at your child's schedule. Ask about what the path is for your kid to go to eighth grade algebra. And if you don't see a pathway for your kid to get to eighth grade algebra, you need to have a conversation with that principal. And if if you're not satisfied there, keep going up the chain. Keep going. Because you, as the parent, make that determination. Mm-hmm. Nobody else about what your kid has the capacity to do. And, and in California, they'll offer they, so you can take algebra and geometry in middle school, but high school defaults you in the ninth grade to algebra. So algebra, and you and 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 if you are a black kid without having that type of support or push. Ninth grade is algebra, 10th grade is geometry, and then 11th grade might be either algebra, trigonometry, yeah. algebra two or whatnot, right? So I was actually one that passed algebra. And then I went to, when I went to high school, something happened with my transcript, they tried to make me take it again. And I had to kind of argue and fight with these people. I just think that black kids be left out there, yo. I, I just really do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't I don't think people really listen to those parents a lot. And, and you mentioned that. We did a whole report and study on that. Tracking plays a large part in that too. Huge. A lot of those people Huge. didn't didn't push to get into those programs. It just depended on the middle school that they went to and, and the pedigree they came in. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I had to fight. Um, I had to fight to get switched into like a um into a higher track program or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it, it's 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 wild, man. It's really wild. But I, I, I but I agree with everything you said. I have a question for Dr. Anderson on this one, too, though. Mm -hmm. No, Dr. I just had a question for you on this one, which is um, I remember when I was on the board, the middle school association came and did a presentation for us. And they just basically said, you guys don't know how to do middle school. (laughs) So so they just basically say, like, middle school was a thing. And they were the National Association. They said, don't worry, you're not by yourself. There's a lot of districts that know how to do this. So when you say eighth grade, this is critically important. I think about sixth grade and seventh grade, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, because you don't just end up in eighth grade. You get there. Is there anything that you think should be happening before eighth grade when it's mission critical? Because we know for black boys, specifically middle school, all hell breaks loose in terms of stats and discipline and other stuff that happens. Is there anything that you're seeing in the scaffolding for sixth grade, seventh grade, that should be happening that sets you up for eighth grade? Well, the thing I worry about is the rigor. Quite honestly, Chris, it's when you look at the rigor of middle school math, I worry that too many kids are getting passed along in these more basic math courses. And so 
parents should be looking at the actual curriculum. I think it becomes, for many parents, if you haven't had a positive math experience, and a lot of us have not had positive math mm. experiences in middle mm-hmm. school, it becomes intimidating. But again, that's how the system wins. So I think that it's critically important for parents to do just like Dr. Cole said. You need to go, you need to speak up. You need to have the actual curriculum Pin it to your refrigerator, the side of your refrigerator. So you're checking the boxes alongside your child. And if the curriculum, because it's also about scope and sequence, those two powerful words in curriculum building, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to say that in the eighth grade curriculum or in the sixth grade curriculum, we're going to cover X, Y, Z. You need to make sure that it gets covered because sometimes you'll find that some in some schools, they spend almost six months, half a school year on the first unit or the second unit. And so the curriculum is laid out, but if the scope and sequence is not being followed and the pacing guide is not being reinforced by whoever is the instructional leader of that school, you've got a challenge. And so that's where this falls apart. It's instructional leadership that makes sure, and I'm getting myself all I can say, I'm getting myself all worked up about it, but it's the truth because you've got to make sure that that pacing guide is being fulfilled and that the kids, again, if kids aren't getting it, we've got all this money. Now we can figure out how. So I hear you, Dr. Uh, Ray Ankrum, talking about how 30 kids doesn't matter, but it matters. Size matters because kids that need additional support and remediation, we've got to have the consistency around that remediation. We can't do anything once a week or after school. We've got to be able to build into the content structure of our classrooms the capacity for kids that have not met those gates to go back and really intensively study and learn and master those skills. So parents should be looking at that curriculum, post it on your refrigerator and make sure you're crossing it off and that you are making sure that your child's grades and whatever those unit end assessments are sufficient for you to feel like they're on their pathway to getting to where they've got to get by the end of eighth grade to get through that gate. Absolutely. Wow. This has yes, been, been an amazing show, even though it was sabotaged by StreamYard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I want to <laughs> I want to roll us into closing thoughts. Uh, Cole, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, yeah, man, I think it was a really good um, episode. I think um, I just remember reflecting on the type of education and schooling I was getting, and every year. Uh, <laughs> Wishbone, the show Wishbone, Ghost Rider, Sesame Street, all of them was better than the teachers. It was just better than the schools that I had. I I, I learned more from reading and, and I learned more from Mr. Rogers than I did in those. And that's just kind of sad. Uh, I also watched this amazing show uh, last night called Generation Hustle. It's on HBO Max. And I watched the last episode, episode 10. And it's this black boy who's a rapper in Detroit. And I just think he is the most brilliant 21 year old that I like that I've seen. He's this generation's Jay-Z. And when you watch it, you'll see how this generation, how how this how we have felt this young man and just how brilliant he is and how he's working outside the law. But he's like this Robin Hood dude that's teaching. It's it's ridiculous, but it, you should definitely watch it. Uh, I just want to thank our guests for being here, man. And um, listen. We, if, if these shows don't teach you nothing else, all they do is make me dig deeper into our bag of that. We just on our own. Mm-hmm. Like you just can't rest on the laurels, man. And if, and if this if this pandemic doesn't do anything else, thank God that is making you more vigilant. Thank God that is making you have to like get involved in a different kind of way. I think these are things that we all should have been doing from the beginning. But 
these these places ain't, ain't made for your baby, man. I think mm-hmm. that when she was talking about that scope and sequencing, I think you should really pay attention to it. And what that means in regular language is ask your teachers, what should my kid be knowing at the end of next month or at the end of two months? Or what, what does that look like? What should they be able to perform? And what's the next level? Like make it conversational and then do the best you can, like at home, like checking in on that stuff as well and, and, and trying to make sure your kid gets to those other levels. They'll take credit for it if your kid actually comes out on top. But, you know, I, I think in these conversations that sometimes we end up talking about the adults and how they feel and what's happening to them more than what is happening to innocent young people that's just kind of caught out there. Um, I don't really care about somebody's feelings and adults' feelings with a, with, a, with a master's degree that's getting a salary. I mean, I want everybody to be okay. I don't care about it at the expense of an innocent child, that's the the consequence for us is just different. It's just really, really, really different. And I've seen what happened firsthand when that's when when certain people get prioritized over our babies. That's it. Appreciate mm-hmm. you, man, uh, Chris. Um. So this has been a powerful show. And that last part that Dr. Anderson was doing, I just could have let it go on for a while because that should never stop that conversation. I need some educational reparations. It didn't work out real well for me in the K-12 world. And I need some reparations because y'all like I need my change. (laughs) Like a lot of money was spent through the government system of me getting through schools. And then I became a parent in, you know, in my 20s, in my early 20s, became a parent. And um, and I still feel the need that there needs to be some some reparations because after all this time, 150 years, 100 years of educational science, and there are just still some things that the system has not been responsible or accountable for delivering on. The science that is there to understand how you do scope and sequence and pacing and how you um, how you run a school. Dr. Ron Edmonds and, you know, years ago had effective schools. And after him came one thing a decade of different sciences around what it takes for an uh, effective school to happen. And things like having a, a strong instructional leader, coherent educational philosophy, teachers that are bought into the educational philosophy of the school that they w- work in, lots of collaboration time. Lots of use of data to drive what they're going to do for different kids and shared data, not just one person owning it. And then really good uh, school home relationships to kind of like make sure that you you get that 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 affirmation outside of school that you need. The science is all there, but it hasn't been assembled in a way that has been responsible. And this is after trillions and trillions of dollars being spent on on education over years, over many years. We've been trying to get things right for black students since the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And and um, and it's almost like it's always almost right there. It's going to come. But I don't believe it anymore. I've had three decades in now. I don't believe it anymore. I want my money back. I want the money that my kids um, are generating their head count. Uh, when I say that black kids are the new cotton in education, their per pupil income is feeding a lot of people. But we're not getting the benefit out of that that we need actually for them to, to, to be doing well. I talk about education all the time every day. And meanwhile, I have three kids upstairs right now that are getting raggedy ass uh, uh, remote learning that that should be better than it is. When you have three kids in a school, it could be in, in schools, it could be a full-time job to stay on top of 
every piece of the, 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 every assignment, everything they're supposed to be doing. We could pull off and my wife should be sainted for this because my wife does this more than, than I have any uh, patience for it, but pulls down a list of all the things that the teachers are breezing through. They're doing five days worth of content in two days. And that's not even all synchronous. As a matter of fact, most of their, their learning is asynchronous and they're supposed to go through this long list of, of assignments. And we have three kids. We're supposed to stay, we're supposed to work jobs and stay on top of three kids worth of individual assignments that that add up over time that are being taught half ass. Doesn't feel right. Doesn't seem like something like it's not setting us to be the best parents we can be. It's not setting our kids up. And um, and it's not that I don't have sympathy for the people that are doing the work on the other side. I just need their money. (laughs) I need them to give me the money that and let me get the help that my kids need. That's what's up, man. So, Doc, you're going to close this out, but I, I want you to add that high school gate because we didn't get to it, but I would love for you to close mm-hmm. out with. Mm-hmm. See, we could talk about it, about the high school gate for about another hour. <laughs> I just want to say to the three of you and to Sharif in his absence, I just appreciate what you do to stand up for our most underrepresented, our most vulnerable, please stay in that fight. We need you and we need your voices. We need your commitment. We need your passion. So I want to just start out by saying thank you for the work that you do and the commitment that you have made um, to enlighten all of us um, on some of these key issues that we need to be discussing. As for the high school gate, I will just say that it is really critically important that parents understand what their children need in order to graduate from high school. I think that parents also need to understand that each high school is developed differently. No two high schools are the same. And so we should not just think about passing our kids off to a high school and thinking that, well, now they're just finished because they're going to come out with a brand, the brand of whatever that high school is baking. And you should understand what that is. I'll tell you what I tell my graduate students, which is when you want to know what a school is doing, go to its website and look up its mission and its vision. Every school should have a mission and a vision. And if you don't understand it, if you don't think that that speaks to what you want for your child, speak up. Or maybe you need to find a different educational alternative for what you want your child to have. But every school has a mission and a vision. And even worse, if they don't have one, you know you're not in the right school because that school has no vision. So you should be thinking about what you want for your children. Your child's education experience is important and you help to shape that. And thinking about how you access that coming into the school building, being active, be engaged. I would just say to all parents that even as you're looking at right now, some of the materials might seem overwhelming. You're getting a lot of emails, you're getting phone calls, you're getting a lot of information in in backpacks, but take the time to think about the things that are important for you in, in terms of getting your child through those three gates and that fourth gate of high school graduation and knowing what it's going to take to get them there. Um, as parents, you know what? We, we don't get do-overs. As parents, we make a lot of mistakes, but just showing up, that's a big, that's a big plus. That erases a lot of mistakes. And so you don't have to have a PhD to show up. You don't have to have a PhD to speak up. And so this is what I said to every parent when mm-hmm. in the school that I founded. And it's what I continue to say to every parent. I just want parents to understand that they have choices for their children and that they should act on that and exercise that. And this pandemic has shown that the parent voice is the most powerful voice of all because 50% of white families and uh, 70% of Latino families and almost and over 70% 
almost 70% of African-American families and 85% of Asian families are still in some type of remote learning. And so there are a lot of families that are voting with their feet right now and they are speaking up with their feet. So let's continue to have the parent voice be the most important voice because you pay your taxes and you are paying into a system. So you should have a voice into how that system educates your children. Man, uh, so I, I just want to first and foremost just thank you for coming on the show, Doctor A. You brought it. Uh, we got we got to bring you back. You got to commit to coming back. Uh, we're we're here. We're, we're um, for me, uh, my my final thoughts are this: It's a big week in the Ankrum camp. On Thursday, I uh, I defend my proposal. Uh, I just got back um, uh, some comments from an internal ed- editor from a from a peer review uh, for an article that I submitted. It got uh, it got accepted, um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is the organization and readability. Uh, they were both fives from both of the peer reviewers. So Ankrum is in this camp. Congratulations. Doing this thing. All right. Um, so you guys have been listening to another episode of the Eight Black Hands. Uh, look out for what we're doing during the week individually. And uh, stay tuned for next Sunday. We got a, a big surprise for y'all. Did I let it out the bag? I might let it out the bag. All right. All right anyways, peace out. Peace. <laughs> You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.